Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Hodgepot. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wanted to send out some awesome sports love to you guys. I have three topics today, three main topics that I'm going to get into myself. I do not have a guest. It is just me. I wanted to try this out, hit you guys with my own opinions and not anybody else's. I hope you like it. If you don't, I'm sorry, but you don't have to listen. That is the beautiful thing about me doing this out of my own volition. (laughs) I am not generating revenue right now. And I am not depending on any revenue. I hope you guys like it. But at the end of the day, this is, I can be more creative, so to speak, with my time on this podcast. So three major topics I'm going to get into. The Lakers are NBA champions once again, first time in 10 years. The Panthers are streaking, get their third win in a row versus a uh, Atlanta team that is looks like they have been shot and are falling and crashing to earth uh, and also wanted to get into the NLCS and the ALCS in baseball. Hope you guys are tuning in. It's kind of a crazy time in sports because there are literally so many things going on that it's hard to focus in on one thing. I mean, last night I'm sitting there on the couch trying to watch ALCS game one of the Rays and Astros, the Lakers Miami Heat finals game six and the Seahawks and Vikings game on Sunday night football. Now, part of this is going to be removed from the equation now since the Lakers are NBA champions. So there is no more NBA for a while. The bubble is done, which I would love to get into next. But yes, thank you guys for coming. If you listen to this podcast, I really appreciate it because I'm trying out some new stuff. If you want to let me know what you think about it, please do so. I am on myself on Instagram at Hajito88. And also, once again, if you know me, you can hit me up. Let me know what you think. Uh, Send me an email if you have my email. Send me a text if you have my phone number. And thank you for coming. Hope you enjoy. All right, so the Los Angeles Lakers have won their 17th NBA championship in the bubble. The bubble is wrapped. Get that? Bubble wrap. I know you guys love my awesome bubble puns, but the Los Angeles Lakers have won another NBA title, first one in 10 years since Kobe and the cobbled together Pau Gasol era Lakers beat the Boston Celtics in seven games back in 2010. So LeBron James and Anthony Davis with their dominance and brilliant defensive play from their role players rode their team to a very convincing NBA title. And guys, in my opinion, I think the best team won. They looked like the best team, especially since the NBA restarted. They looked awesome. Uh, Their defense was amazing and their star power between LeBron and, and AD were, you know, two two truly great players uh, uh, playing together at an all time rate. So they, they they really asserted their dominance here in the in these playoffs, and they just looked like the best team, guys. I mean, you I, it's hard to look at anybody else who played in the bubble as as being like a worthy uh, champion other than them. 
the Clippers looked like the most talented team. They looked like they had the most guys, but at the end of the day, they were they did not mesh. They did not play good defense, and mentally they faltered down the stretch against the Nuggets. Who I honestly I think the Nuggets are going to be the team that years from now, possibly if I'm putting money on a team years from now being the best of all these teams. It's probably going to be the Nuggets because they're they're up and coming. Their stars are not aging, kind of like the Lakers are. They have a great young core with guys who are coming up, like Michael Porter Jr. and guys who are already established, like Jamal Murray and, and uh, Jokic. So I think they're actually going to be the team that you look back on this this year and be like, oh yeah, that was when they first started to get good. I don't know if they're going to win a championship, but I think you're going to see them in some conference finals in the West for sure, for years to come, especially if they can build off of their young core. Now, who knows in the NBA nowadays, I'm sure that everybody back in 2000, back in 2012, thought the Oklahoma City Thunder were going to go on to win three titles with their young core, which was truly a great young core, but they didn't end up doing anything with it and they moved on. So we'll see how that goes. But um, the biggest topic I want to get into today in this because I know we can break down the numbers of this title honestly I don't think the Heat were as good as the Lakers I don't know if you listened to my last show where I said Lakers in six that is what happened I am Nostradamus right um with my picks uh I didn't think the Heat were as good as the Los Angeles Lakers when fully healthy but being decimated by injuries for them to get it to six games I thought was a win in and of itself and if you're a Miami fan you just have to be proud of your team because they showed fight. They showed grit and determination. Uh, and people are going to remember Jimmy Butler's performance in, in this finals for a long time, hopefully, because I think he deserves it. But LeBron James, fourth finals MVP for his third different team, right? Everybody, when LeBron wins a title, there's always the debate nowadays. Is LeBron close to MJ? The LeBron haters and MJ stands would say, no way. The Kobe fans would say, Kobe's better than LeBron anyways, which, um, rest in peace, Kobe. Uh, but I I never quite thought that. I was never on that train, even though Kobe had his own greatness. And, yeah, so I have some thoughts, some opinions about the LeBron James-MJ debate. And overall, I'm going to characterize this this way, right? If LeBron does somehow overtake Jordan in his career, he's going to have to win probably at least three more championships. Being that he's 36 years old at this point, that that in and of itself is, it seems like is going to be a a feat to accomplish. I don't know if he can, but he has not slowed down yet. So... To, I'm not going to say that he can't, but I am not going to sit here and predict that the man is going to win seven titles leading into his late 30s, possibly early 40s. I, I am not going to sit here and predict that. But I think that is what he's going to have to do in order to convince the greater public that he is the best player in NBA history. And a lot of people don't want to hear it, right? They're not going to hear the debate. They're never going to sit there and, and even get a bit credence because of their loyalties to MJ, their fandom, everything like that. 
I am going to sit here and I think it's I think it's a conversation. I think MJ is still the greatest and I don't think you can take that away from MJ yet, but I think that LeBron is creeping. I think LeBron is getting closer than anybody's ever got. And I think it's overall because LeBron has done things that MJ never did. He didn't he he probably he's not as great of a player overall as MJ was, but you look at what he did in 2016 against the 73-win Warriors, coming back from a 3-1 deficit, leading in every single category in the finals, points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, everything, to beat that team with a Kyrie and a Kevin Love in that series. They they definitely helped. I mean, Kyrie hitting that shot clinched it. But he has done things MJ has never done. He has now won four finals MVPs for three different teams. MJ never did that. He has a great second banana, if you want to call him that. I, I think here in the next few, year or two, AD will kind of take over the reins as the best player on the Lakers. But for now, his 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 guy, his his running mate, running mate that he's going with is probably the best uh, player that he's ever played with in Anthony Davis. And... What he did this year, he he averaged in the finals most in points, rebounds, and assists. I think he deserved the finals MVP. I did think going into the finals, though, that if they tried to give that finals MVP to anybody else, unless they were averaging 40, 20, and 10, it was going to be really difficult to do. Now, to LeBron's credit... He showed up and he earned it. So I'm not going to sit here and act like he didn't earn it. The man earned it. And he has proven year in and year out that he is, I think, over the long haul, one of the best all-around, if not the best all-around players in basketball history. The way that he shows up every single year and dominates on offense in all facets of the game, mentally, getting all the assist numbers that he does. His passing skills are through the roof. He has gotten better and better and better at shooting year in and year out. And it's it's really a feat, I think. If you look, the man's been to 11 finals now. And, and yeah, he hasn't won them all. He hasn't won more than he's lost. And he was 1-3 with the Cavs, 2-2 two two with the Heat, 0-1 or I guess it was one and four overall with the Cavs. I was thinking the second stint. So one and four with the Cavs, two and two with the Heat, and now one and zero oh with the Lakers. And what he what he's done though, from a durability standpoint, he's never missed a playoff game, which is so impressive. And he he has to, he has he has played in the quote unquote load management era, right? I mean, you you saw Pop do it a lot with the Spurs back in the mid 2010s where he was the first guy where he had these older superstars, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Monty Ginobili, and he knew if he got them time if he got them minutes in the regular season, minutes off, he could have more run from them in the playoffs, which ended up getting them a ring. And to he came up in that era. He played in that era. You you had uh, then the Kawhi load management Raptors, and uh, you know the things that he he has done in that era. 
I think shows his his all time. He's he's just one of the most durable athletes in the history of professional sports. Period. I mean, he's going to go up there with Brett Favre and Cal Ripken as those guys who year in year out show up and they just don't get hurt. He doesn't. If he gets hurt, it, it's like a knock. It's like a ding. He will come back. Uh, you know, within a few weeks, and I, you know, the. One point that I want to get to is if the Lakers had this team last year, what would they have been able to do in the final in the playoffs last year? But for the debate, you I think I think when you're talking about the MJ versus LeBron debate, you have some very real dynamics that are in play and it and it's what makes this more of a conversation. If LeBron James was kind of like how Kobe was, Kobe was this spitting image, all-time great scoring and defensive shooting guard like MJ was, where he could he could score from mid-range, he could get incredibly hot from 3, you know, elusive going through the lane, could junk, could jump, could lock down on perimeter defense just like MJ did. He was like a spitting image of MJ, right? LeBron is a completely different player where he's this he's also more he he's almost more comparable to a Scottie Pippen in a way that he is this point forward who can pass, who can run, who can play amazing defense at times, who and he has developed the perimeter shooting to his game, which is crazy. I mean, the dude shot 41% from 3 in these finals, shot 60% overall in the finals. I think that's extremely impressive for him. And so he's he's a completely different style of player. It's almost like if you were to combine a perimeter shooter with Magic Johnson with Carl Malone almost, and and put them together in one in in one player. It's like we've never seen a player like LeBron before, right? And that's why I think Kobe gets overlooked in these discussions so much, is because. Kobe was MJ, but just not quite to the level of MJ. He was he was as close as you could get to MJ without being MJ, right? And I I think that is a dynamic of the discussion that makes it really hard because when you're talking about the two, what makes LeBron so great and puts him on this level that I don't think really anybody's ever been on as this kind of Oscar Roberts. Oscar Robertson, you know, Scottie Pippen type point forward is his assist numbers with his scoring numbers. And MJ had the thing that MJ did and that people still revere him for is he was he was almost like a a, a legend in real time playing the game, right? Ever since he scored 63 in the playoffs against the the Celtics, the 86 Celtics, which a lot of people thought were one of the greatest teams of all time. He he was kind of put on that legendary status, and he only kept increasing his legendary status from there, right? The dude did the greatest things in the greatest moments. He was extremely durable, right? Defensive player of the year, like a 12-time scoring champion. He played all facets of the game the way you're supposed to play him with this ferocity that, Nobody can match. Nobody can match MJ's will, right? That that's what kind of puts him above LeBron in my book. 
is the legendary, iconic nature with the way that he played the game. And nobody's played it ever since the same way. Like LeBron has those those kind of small pockmarks on his resume where he kind of shrunk mentally in certain moments. And he can't get away with that. He has to own that, right? To deny that would almost tarnish his legacy because it would make him look out it, it would make him look like this this guy who's trying to lie about the things that he's done and experienced in his career. But MJ to do the things that he did the way that he did them, you know, that I I always say this, like people say that MJ is the greatest because six finals, six finals MVPs, six and six, he never lost in the finals. He never let the finals get to seven games, always won it in six or less. And I, I think those are impressive resume markers. But what's the most impressive to me and why I put MJ as the greatest of all time is because of the, the legendary stories, the 63 against the Celtics, right? The flu game, the shot, the the fact that when he came back from his first retirement playing baseball, he didn't miss a game in three full seasons or three and a half seasons. He played every single game. He never missed a game, didn't miss a playoff game. This is when he's in his mid-30s. He, is, he leaves the game for a, a season and a half comes back and he is the best player in the sport on top of the fact that he is the most durable player in the sport and wins another three championships against what would be looked at as an all-time great team in the Utah Jazz at the time if he hadn't have been there to win those titles. So MJ to me is the greatest because of the legendary stuff, because of the iconic nature of the way he played the sport. LeBron is like this unstoppable force in his own way where he doesn't have the will he that MJ had. He doesn't have the iconic moments that MJ had. He has his own iconic moments, but not at the way that define the entire sport and the entire history of the sport like MJ did. But he is he is this constant unstoppable force that he will get to the finals if he has a somewhat decent team around him. He will get to where he should get to no matter what. He is like, you can hang your hat on LeBron being a walking triple-double in the playoffs. He has not missed a playoff game. He has his own, he is starting to build his own legacy of durability, right? He is starting to build his own legend status of how year after year, no matter who's around him, if he gets defensive play and consistent shooting out of the team that is around him, he is able to drag, not even drag this team. I don't think he, that's the difference with this Lakers team and in some of those Cavs teams is he didn't drag this team to the finals, right? He, he was the best player on this team, but he did not drag them to the finals. I think, like I was saying earlier, I, I, still believe that in the Western Conference Finals, Anthony Davis was the best player for for a lot of those games up until that, that clinching game um, five. Anthony Davis did a lot of things great this year, and he he did not shrink back. He showed that he can play great at the highest level in the toughest times, like on when – when every everybody gets tight in the playoffs, he showed that he can rise above that and still play his game, still you know 
assert his will, so to speak, with his length. And I, I definitely think that, that LeBron used that. I mean, I, I, I made a note that he averaged 39 minutes in these finals. And that, to me, shows that he is he is starting to change the way he plays, which is why I say I don't know... I don't know how he would win another two or three rings at this point because he's just he I mean at some point a human can only take so much right but he is he is this constant force almost like this force of nature that if you give him the things that he needs to succeed it doesn't even have to be the best of the best like he doesn't need the the 2016 Golden State Warriors to thrive. He just needs some wings who can play defense and shoot that he can pass it, that he can kick it to when he drives to, to run his offense and another guy that he can depend on to score 30. And he can, he can get a team to the championship. He can win a championship. And like I said, I thought the Lakers were the best team in the league this year. Um, They were definitely the best team in the bubble overall. And you saw LeBron's will. He just uh, he he is he did what he does, which is consistent game in game out, dominant play on offense. He is a basketball savant genius. He always makes the right play, makes the right pass, and he is starting to carve out his own legendary status in the league. Right, he has not matched MJ's legendary status yet. And the only way I think he does it, like I said, is if he wins another three titles and and beats LeBron and beats MJ in titles. Because here's the thing with it: he hasn't just gone to six like MJ did. He's gone to so many NBA finals. I can't even count them off the top of my head. Let's see. Um, yeah, he's been to ten, ten or eleven, right? And the thing the thing about it is is it, like the fact that he's gotten there so many times is almost looked at as this negative resume point, right? You know, MJ never lost the finals. Well, he went to six. LeBron's been to eleven. Sorry, ten. He's been to ten finals. And he was one four of them. So he's four and six in the finals. And people look at it as some negative. I look at it as like the dude continues to continues to be there, right? Continues to get to where he's he needs to get to. And he may not always win it. Like, like that's the thing, is like if the man won nine or eight out of ten finals, like that that was that was the thing that was always so great about Brady, is no matter what those Patriots teams were there in the AFC championship every single year. They won their division every single year, which is so hard to do in football. But for some reason in basketball, it's almost looked at, looked at as this negative on his resume. And he's becoming this legend of the sport, I think, with how many times he plays in the finals. He's not Bill Russell. He's not, he's not MJ. He is his own thing that he that is evolving that he's showing that he can still lead teams in points and rebounds and assists in the finals and win the finals MVP at age 36 he's continuing to push forward his legacy in terms of what he has been to the game of basketball right 
MJ, Air Jordan, is always going to be looked at as the greatest, I think. I don't think there's anything LeBron can do to pass him because you cannot take away the legend status of MJ. You can pass him in finals rings, right? It's say LeBron did get seven. People are always gonna people are gonna find some way to critique it. Well, the East was so bad when he was in the East. If 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 MJ had to play against the East that LeBron had to play against, MJ would have won twelve titles and he never had to play against the Bad Boy Pistons or the Celtics in the eighties. He never had to play against, you know, these teams and that. No. The thing about the thing about it is is that is that is true, but it's because of what MJ did in those moments. It's because of the shot against Craig Elo. It's because of the flu game against the Jazz. That's why people love him so much. It's because he was this iconic, larger than life figure. Like that was the thing about the Last Dance that got me so much, and and everybody used it as like this moment, this trump card for why MJ is better than LeBron. Here it is. This is it right here. It's the it's this. Look at these stories. Look at this. I was I will I looked at it as like, man, MJ really was this larger than life persona that he protected. And at the time you could. Like nowadays it'd be so hard. But you could see it on his face in that doc. You could see it uh, behind the scenes that the man was human. He was tired. He was drained after after some of those seasons. And of all that greatness, right? But he protected that image of being larger than life, this great guy and this this every man that could pretty much be everybody in the history of the game one on one and all this stuff. And but, you know, everybody wanted to be like Mike and all this stuff. The and I, I think that, that that is why MJ is always gonna be the greatest of all time. And and hear me right. I'm not saying that MJ is the greatest of all time because of his, his PR team and marketing. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is what MJ did with the moments that he was given was legendary and will be probably some of the greatest moments in league history for all time. And I just don't know if LeBron can beat that, right? Like, what was the moment when LeBron won his first finals against the Thunder? Nobody really, I, I mean, can you think of a, a one moment that really shines in that, in that year? Like, you can't. It was kind of like this thing that LeBron had a, arrived, that Heat team was dominant. The, the Thunder weren't quite there yet, and they used their experience and their dominance to overpower the youth of the Oklahoma City Thunder at the time, right? The next year, 2013, when he beat the Spurs, what, what was the iconic moment? in that series. It was the Ray Allen shot. It wasn't even LeBron James moment. And you could make an argument that when, when LeBron hit that mid range J in game seven, the game after that, which actually won him the championship, that was his own kind of iconic moment. I I get that. I, I, you know, that was a compelling finals. I love that finals, but, and then he lost to the Spurs the next year when he was kind of by himself with, um, just with a hurt D Wade, Chris Bosh wasn't what he used to be. Um, and then, and then I think the most iconic moment of his career is the 2016 finals. He led in every statistical category. He was great throughout that finals. And he had that block that sealed the championship in game seven, which he should not have won. Like they should not have won that finals. And everybody who, uh, it, it, it kind of makes me mad because everybody says that Draymond Green getting suspended is why they, why they won. 
And all the people who say that, I think it's wrong. I think it's BS because they could have won in game five. They could have won in game seven when they did have a healthy Draymond Green. And you're telling me that team with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, um, Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, like this all-time great bench, Harrison Barnes, that, you know, uh, that was like still prime Andrew Bogut on that team, couldn't have won game six. No, they definitely could have won. If Draymond Green is the only reason that they that they lost that series, like that's BS. That Warriors team was better. They were just drained from winning 70, 73 games. It took a lot out of them, more than they admitted at the time. And they made some careless mistakes down the stretch in those games, right? And LeBron capitalized and he asserted his will and his greatness and he got that third title. And I think that's the most iconic moment of MJ's or of MJ of LeBron's career. I don't think he's really ever going to top it. And I, I honestly like. I think he'll. I, I think they'll win one more title. The this Lakers team, if they can kind of tweak it, they get Avery Bradley back and do some more things. Maybe make a trade or two with Kuzma or somebody and bring in somebody that that can contribute more than he did or something like that. They I think they can win one more title. And I think that'll be his career. Like it, he he will probably win five rings. If if that this is my opinion. Like I said, if he goes on win six or seven, then then it becomes a lot more of a conversation with him and Jordan. But my the main crux of this conversation the main crux of what I'm saying is that LeBron has like one iconic moment in finals history. And MJ has like how many? Six? Like five? Four? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. MJ is a legend that nobody can top. And maybe maybe one day that somebody will. Maybe Luka Doncic is that guy. He, he, he is starting his career the way that you want to see an all-time great legend start it. But he still has to get there. You can't put that on him yet. LeBron has is like I said, he is a constant force in the league nowadays where year in, year out, you are going to get if he as long as he is healthy, which he has proven that he is this Iron Man that never gets hurt really, as long as he is healthy, he is going to be in the mix. And if he has one other guy with him, he's going to be able to get there. And he and he's going to compete in those championships. So I think that you know LeBron's story is not finished. MJ is still the better player to me because of the legend. But in terms of on-the-court play, I think LeBron has done things that MJ has never done, just like MJ did things LeBron has never never done. LeBron's always criticized for it, right? But he's starting to build that legacy of, like, he's com- he is putting together a legacy of a player that nobody else has, has, has done it like he's done it. Nobody's gotten to, the, to this many finals like he has other than Dudes like Bill Russell back in the day when the league was a lot more top-heavy and it was different. LeBron's done it with so many different teams. LeBron's done it over 15 years now. LeBron's done it with different guys. He doesn't need one second banana, if you will. doesn't need one Robin to his Batman to get there. He's done it with different coaches, with different players, with different organizations. And I think it speaks to his own legacy his own legend that he's building. He's not there yet, but he's on his way. So 
Congrats, Lakers, I guess. They, aren't they the most annoying franchise? I can't stand them. I, I, it's, it's hard, man. I have never liked the Lakers, uh, but it's just something annoying about them. It's like they, they, it's like they don't do the thing with the Kobe and Shaq years. It's like they, the, the, they get these guys because of who they are, not because they're this great organization. Like ever since Jerry West has left, I've never, I never loved them. And I don't know, but they did it and they deserved it. I think, uh, they're a great team and, we will see what the future has in store for the twilight of LeBron James' career. I think it's not done yet, but I, I, it's incredibly hard to see him catching up to MJ. So let's take a break, and I will be back with some Panthers talk. All right, so the Carolina Panthers yesterday beat the Atlanta Falcons in Atlanta for the first time in six seasons, five seasons, first time since 2014. They won 23 to 16 and the Matt rule Carolina Panthers through five weeks are three and two. They are surprising a lot of folks, including myself. So I wanted to talk about this game and kind of break down just like we do after every single one of these games for this team. If you're a fan of this team listening to this, what does this mean? What what does the future look like for Matt Rule and the Carolina Panthers? What does this result, how does this result factor into his legacy, the Panthers' legacy, everything like that. So the overall notes on the game, I took a lot of notes yesterday. The The biggest keys I, I, I noticed when you look at the, the kind of the way the game played out, Joe Brady looks is, is living up to the hype so far. He is calling some great plays, I think. What he's doing, I mean, I wrote first quarter – it was all Curtis Samuel in the passing game, right? And then second quarter, it was all Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore. Uh, the 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 what the thing the push the buttons he is pushing for this team and this offense is very impressive to me as somebody who is younger than me and um, already an offensive coordinator in the NFL and having success with a cast of characters that is is good. I mean, I I think the personnel for the for the Panthers offense is 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 sneaky good, right? Teddy Bridgewater is a sneaky good quarterback. You saw it yesterday with his stats. He he threw for over 300 yards, 27 and 37 with two touchdowns. He he is a, he has been impressive this season. He, and he has shown to be as good as what people thought he was when he was winning games with New Orleans. Everybody said it, it, they had this great team around him and, you know, it's a check down Charlie and all that stuff. He, I, I think his game is getting better. He's progressing in this offense and he looks like him and Joe Brady have a really good connection. But Joe Brady seems like he is um, a great offensive mind. And I know his story is still being written, especially with the Panthers, but it may not be uh, too long before it is completed with the Panthers because – I do think teams are going to be calling him this offseason. I think he'll get some interviews. And it'll be interesting to see if a team takes a chance on him since he's so young and he's so inexperienced. It's kind of hard. But that's what happened with Sean McVay. And Sean McVay, looks, he looks like a great hire. You know, I mean, um, so, so yeah. So this game yesterday, the Panthers got out to a 20-7 to lead by halftime. 
They looked like they were in control in all three phases. Mike Davis was like having a he had a, an, a such a great game yesterday. That dude is a really tough runner. He's hard to tackle. He's great at catching the ball out of the back out of the backfield. And honestly, like on a lot of passing plays, he looks great at pass protection. Like he looks like a great all-around running back. He he may not be as dynamic as some of these top-tier, high-paid Christian McCaffrey, Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley type guys. Like he's not going to do some of the stuff that they do on the football field that just leaves your mouth open, but he is a three-tool running back where he can run, he can catch, he can run in space, he can run through people, and he can block people in the passing game. He has been impressive to watch. Curtis Samuel is is having a great season so far. He made some really tough catches in traffic yesterday, which is the one thing that I feel like we hadn't seen Curtis Samuel do in the past is making tough catches and the way they're using him is has basically their second running back right now is also extremely impressive. Not surprising because that's what he did in college at Ohio state was he was like a running back receiver hybrid. And it looks like in the league, that's what he's best suited for. Um, when he has been just a receiver, he has been spotty at times and he ha- he, he never turned into that consistent dependable number two guy. But now that they have a true 1A and 1B and Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore, it takes that pressure off of him in the pass game, right? And he can make some of those tough catches without be, having to be the guy to make them all the time, right? He, he had a great first half. DJ Moore had the long catch, and he had some other – he had a couple other good plays – the Robbie Anderson looks like he is evolving into into a true number one wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, I, I I did not I did not love in the off season when the Panthers brought him in. I thought that was kind of like one of those moves that was he. I liked him when he played for the New York Jets, and I you know now it looks great because they're winning games. I thought it would. I didn't think it would be the the greatest decision. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Is he actually going to be able to do that for the for the Carolina Panthers? What he did for the New York Jets, being a deep threat, and he has turned into a, just an all around good receiver. His route running looks really good. He's getting in and out of his breaks like so great, and he and he's get. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't gone up against like the the greatest. DBs in the world right now. I mean, he did well against Patrick Peterson last week in in the Panthers offense in general, but I mean, he looks like he is he is a great number 1 wide receiver. Now, is he is he one of the best in the league? No, I'm not going to sit there and say that, but I mean, that one-handed catch he made yesterday on the sideline was just amazing. If you have not watched it, I I suggest you go back and watch it because Teddy put the ball in the perfect place. And he and he just stuck his hand out, brought it in. He does. He is doing exactly what you want your number one wide receiver to be doing right now, where he's leading us in yards. He is. Um, he hasn't had all the touchdowns yet that a lot of number one receivers have, but the the way that he is playing this year has been so impressive. Um, so, what is the big takeaway from this game? Another thing before I move on, I want to point out Atlanta's second half defensive adjustments were great. The Panthers uh, looked like they were going to steamroll the Falcons. And then they came out 
out of the half, and they just they couldn't get anything going on the offense until Matt Ryan had that awful red zone interception, and they just ran the clock out, essentially. Mike Davis went to work. They iced the game with the running game. Their offensive line played great in this game. Teddy didn't get sacked or anything, and... This is coming from a defense that has been putrid this year in Atlanta's defense, largely because they've had so many injuries. But you would have thought they would have come out and played for their coach the way you thought they could and and shown a little bit more pride than what they did. But once again, they got, you know, Tack McKinley tried to play, but he got hurt, all that stuff. So um, the Atlanta made some great second-half adjustments. They got Calvin Ridley involved. He had a great game. They... Uh, took the ball out of Todd Gurley's hands a little bit more than I thought they should because he looked dynamic in the first half. And their defense did some of the right things against the Panthers in that second half where the Panthers had like two, like one first down at one point. Like they, they didn't do anything in the third quarter. They didn't do anything in the fourth quarter till the very end when they iced the game. And yeah, it was, it was, I thought Dan Quinn. Um, Dan Quinn, who was fired last night, and uh, Thomas Dimitrov as well, their GM with Atlanta. I thought, I look, I cannot stand the Falcons. I, I extremely dislike them. They're probably my most hated team, I would say, uh, them and the Dallas Cowboys. But the, the things that Dan Quinn did there, I thought he was a really good coach. And... You know, he has to wear the whole Super Bowl debacle, the 28 to 3, uh, blowing that lead and everything. Like, um, he can't run away from that, right? And he he hasn't really tried to, but the fact that the the Falcons MO has become blowing leads this season and in the past, like you you have to look at it at his time as a coach and say, man, like you you could have done a lot better. You were a great coach and you could have done so much better if you just made some tweaks to how you called these games. He he I think he is a really good head coach. I think he'll be a, a defensive assistant somewhere, probably be a defensive coordinator again. And maybe even he'll get another head coaching job because he's young enough. He can learn from this. He can move forward. Thomas Dimitrov is his legacy is the general manager of the Falcons. I think he has to be looked at as a as a really good GM uh, for them, and and the things that he has done there as far as putting together some winning seasons, first in franchise history. Me as a Panthers fan, I'm jealous of it. I know when they first drafted Matt Ryan and and had a few winning seasons in a row, and then when they went to the Super Bowl and back to the playoffs the next year, like the Panthers have never done that. They, the so I, I I'll tip my hat to him, wish him the best, and. Whenever this happens in the division in a team, especially like the Falcons, they fire their head coach. It always makes me a little uneasy because it makes me feel, feel like, uh, I don't know. I know what that guy was, right? I knew, I know who he was. He was always hard for us to beat. And, but I don't know wh- who they're going to hire and what the, their potential is going to be. Like if they hired Eric B or even if they hired Joe Brady, like I just mentioned, is uh, what if what if they hire the next all-time great head coach? You just don't know, so it makes me a little nervous. But this game to me, I thought the the Panthers came in there and the the Falcons back were backs were against the wall, right? They were a dinged up team. They were hurt. They weren't the best team in the league. It's not like the Panthers beat the Chiefs yesterday. And they the fact that the the takeaways I have are not so much in the in the 
minute-to-minute, quarter-to-quarter decisions that Matt Rule is making. And the minute-to-minute, quarter-to-quarter decisions that Joe Brady and, and Phil Snow are making. I think the, the, thing, the takeaways I have is the overall big-picture things, which are the Panthers are winning these games, and they're not, they're, they're not blowing leads. They looked extremely disciplined. They look extremely physical on the defensive side of the ball. Kind of the the heartbeat of the of the team, the organization. It's almost like Matt Rule has come in and steadied this ship so that he has made them do the basics well. They they have shown up this season and they have done the basics well in the midst of having virtually no offseason, no preseason. They are not drawing a lot of flags. They're not they have some stupid penalties every now and then, but overall you wouldn't characterize them as an undisciplined team. They are a disciplined football team. They're hitting hard on defense. They're playing fast, which is so surprising to me because of all the turnover they've had on the defensive side of the ball. That it's like I I, I saw like a over um fifty fifty seven percent of their team it was turned over from last season. And the things that they're doing are impressive to me because they look like a veteran team. They look like they are not letting themselves beat themselves. And they are going out and winning these ball games because they're, they're solid on offense and stingy on defense. They're not this all-time great lockdown defense that just makes these, you know, that just doesn't let teams get first downs like they will let these offenses these teams drive on them sometimes and when they do you kind of get worried you're like oh what's gonna happen and then there will be a red zone interception like there was yesterday or last week when they were you know the the two weeks before that where they were in the quarterback's face the entire game their pass rush came on that's a that's what's impressed me about phil snow is he has made adjustments in the season right he has changed up some of the schematic things they do on defense where they are getting more pressure on opposing quarterbacks. Now, the the hard part from this past game was Brian Burns getting a concussion, Yeter Gross Matos getting hurt. Those dudes were playing really well, and I think a big reason why their defense was having so much success is because they were getting good rush from their edge. So this game shows me that this Matt Rule see this Matt Rule's first season is better than we could have expected. He is winning games that he should that were like we went into last week. That I think that was the biggest the the biggest thing about for me. Like when they beat San Diego it was kind of a surprise. Like I said on this podcast, they kind of uh more so just didn't lose that game rather than go out and they didn't go out and win it. They just didn't lose it. Um the 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 game last week against Arizona was so surprising. Because they didn't just beat the Cardinals. They, like, beat them bad. Like, they never let them up from the mat from the first quarter. They won that game. They went out and, and, and bludgeoned them in a lot of ways. A, a team that, an Arizona team that a lot of people thought uh, could go to the playoffs this year, especially with their division being kind of shaken up the way that the 49ers have taken a step back. So that was more surprising. This was the first game of the year that they went into where you're thinking they should win this game. They should be the team that wins. They look better right now. They are the better football team. They're healthier. 
they're they look like more a more disciplined team, they should be the team that wins. And they did it. And that that to me is what was different about this Falcons game. It's not so much the way they won. It's not so much how how they played, all this stuff. It's more so the fact that in an overall sense, they they didn't let the moment uh get too big for them where they were actually favored, right? They they haven't started reading their press clippings yet. Like they still looked hungry. They still looked feisty. They still looked on defense like they were hitting people hard. Like they weren't they weren't gonna get out physical in that game. And it's impressive to me. You know, that was my biggest criticism from the Ron Rivera era was it it always seemed like whenever they were expected to win, the in the biggest moments, it was like the they they kind of rolled over. But if they weren't expected to win, that's when they played the hardest is when they were picked against when when um the media or or Vegas or whoever doubted them. It's almost like that they were kind of front runners in in certain ways. And it always frustrated me, right? Like I, I remember in twenty thirteen when the Panthers had that had that kind of great run in the middle of the season where they won like it's like ten games in a row or something crazy. And it in in the locker room after one of those big wins, I think when they be, beat San Francisco that year, and San Francisco was great. That was when uh, it was the San Francisco team with Jim Harbaugh, and uh, they had just played in the Super Bowl the season before. They had just beat San Francisco, and Ron Rivera's message to the team was like, "Now we're relevant. You guys are relevant now." And it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, "What does that matter?" Like relevance doesn't matter in the middle of a regular season if you don't do anything with it in the postseason, right? So th- this was one of those moments where, uh, okay, you're two and two, you're you're playing a division rival who's got their backs up against the wall. They're trying to fight for their head coach's job. They're decimated with injuries. You should win this game, and they did. They went out and won this game. And whatever relevance comes from that, I hope they don't really care because it, it's not really going to matter in the long run. Right, like I don't know how long Teddy Teddy Bridgewater is going to be the starting quarterback for the Panthers. Uh, so far, he looks great. I, I'm I've been super impressed with him. He seems like he gets better every week, along with Joe Brady, and he seems like a great leader. Like he is becoming more and more the leader of this team, especially with Christian McCaffrey hurt. That's another dynamic we need to get into. Is is Christian McCaffrey? What what is that going to change when he comes back? But Teddy Bridgewater to me looks he looks like a starting quarterback. Like he looks like he almost looks like a franchise type guy. If he can keep this up and do it for a whole year, you're like, dang! Like the Panthers might have gotten a steal. Like w- would you that that's the hard thing? It's like okay, he's through five games. He's thrown for fourteen hundred sixty yards. His uh, like his quarterback rating is pretty good, and you're like. Would you rather have this or an unknown guy in the draft? I mean, they probably want to they're they're probably going to draft a quarterback eventually, right? So, I'm I'm not saying they won't, but it, is this one of those Sean Payton Drew Brees type situations where the head coach didn't draft this guy, but he picked him in free agency and that's who he wants as his guy. Teddy Bridgewater is still young. He still has time to develop. 
he never got time. He never got a chance to de- to develop as a full time starter between getting hurt in Minnesota and and being the backup in New Orleans. Right? You know, everybody talks about all the adversity he's had to fight through, and now he's gotten into a situation where he's the guy and he's making the most out of it, and he's winning these games because he's efficient. He's playing smart. And he's he's doing thing. He's one thing I love. He's getting the ball out quickly. He's helping his offensive line, and he is throwing the ball downfield better than what people thought he was going to be able to do. Like he's not just throwing it short. He's making some great plays in the passing game that are because of him. He he missed a couple yesterday. I mean the the big third down play where he just kind of threw it short to Robbie Anderson. If he would have turned left and saw DJ Moore was wide open and probably would have scored if he would have thrown it to him. So, you know, there are, there is room for improvement. Like this room, this win does not mean the Panthers have arrived and that's not what I'm saying, but for them to go into a game where they're favored and against a, a poor team that's fighting for their coach, fighting for their lives, so to speak. Um, and to, to get a convincing win where it was, it, it it looked a little dicey there, the beginning of the fourth, in the first half of the fourth, when the Falcons drove down the field with Calvin Ridley in the passing game. And then Matt Ryan throws that end zone interception, which was, uh, uh, I mean, you could, it, it was a great play by Phil Snow. He dialed up some pressure. It worked perfectly. It it caused Matt Ryan to make a, a really poor decision in throwing that ball. I mean, uh, the, the wideout was was completely covered, and he still let it go. And Justin Burris made up for that awful uh, mistake he had earlier with that fumble where he didn't jump on it. He tried to pick it up and run with it, and he dropped it again, and Atlanta fell on it. So, And, and that's another point, a little little aside to this game, is if, if, if one, if Justin Burris would have actually just fallen on that fumble – and the Panthers scored a touchdown there. How different would the game have looked? You, you, you got to wonder about it. But the 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 Panthers to then drive down the field and run out the clock like they did with Mike Davis just showed like, man, this team is, they're not surprising people. Like that, that game, them winning that game was not su- them surprising Atlanta, right? That they just showed up as the better team and asserted their their will that they had on that day and beat Atlanta and and won a game they should have won and that was what was impressive to me because it's like all right when you're sneaking up on 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 people when you're sneaking up on the Chargers you're sneaking up on the Cardinals and those teams don't really know you they play out west it's kind of they're you're 0 and 2 at that point 1 and 2 Teams aren't going to take you as seriously. Okay, now you're two and two. You're going up against a divisional opponent that needs to win their game. They just need a win. And and they are going to take you seriously. And to still go out there and win like they did, where it wasn't kind of a fluky win, like that they, they were the better team on the day. That that's what impressed me the most. And moving forward, they got the Bears next week. And then this, they got the Bears at home and then the Saints on the road. The Falcons at home, and then the Chiefs on the road. So th- this four-game stretch is going to be pretty interesting because, I, I and I, I, I'll break it down to the next two games. They have a Bears team at home that's four and one. That that's not a convincing four and one. They look a little shaky. They 
they did not that uh, Thursday night game against the Bucks was real weird, right? I mean, you had the Tom Brady blunder at the end, where you didn't know what down it was, and and the the Bears just kind of hold on to win that game. They're they're they have a great defense, and Nick Foles seems like he is a uh, very very stereotypical Nick Foles, uh, a backup quarterback starting for a team that doesn't have a starting caliber quarterback and the the so this Bears game will be interesting I definitely think it's one of those games the Panthers uh, last I saw they're like a two and a half point favorite at home which you know everybody if you know the Vegas gives uh, the home team three points every time so it's really there it's kind of a pick em game and if they were at a neutral site field, they would be like a half point under underdog against this Bears team, probably because their defense has been so good. So it'll be interesting to see what Joe Brady does against this Bears defense. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get their edge rushers back healthy, uh, what, what this Panthers defense can do. And if they can't get the, if Brian Burns and, and Gross Matos sit out this week, it's going to stink because I, I think it's going to be really hard for this defense to hold up in pass protection, even against Nick Foles, if they can't if they can't rush, um, and they, they their their secondary is, has been better than what I thought it would be this year, so it it's not it's not a foregone conclusion. I'm not saying that Nick Foles is going to light him up for 30 points, but if they can't get a rush, it's it's possible. I mean, it is possible. So it'll be an interesting game between. Two winning teams that are that are that the Panthers and the Bears I look at in the same way, where they're two teams with winning records that have question marks, right? Like nobody's going to look at the Kansas City Chiefs, the you know the, these other teams like that with winning records that have shown to be in the playoffs before the the Baltimore Ravens, right? Nobody's going to look at those teams and with question marks, right? But that the Panthers and these Bears are unproven right now. They have winning records, but it's it's kind of the way they're doing it is different. I mean, people don't know Matt Rule yet, so it's hard to know what he's going to do in more pressure situations, in more high-intensity games. People know Matt Nagy and the Bears, but this is the first time they've been without Trubisky, They've, you know, kind of come back in some of these games and won them. So they are two teams with question marks, so to speak. So it will be interesting to see how they play against each other next Sunday. And then they got the Saints on the road. And the Saints this year are a real interesting team. They were, they've been a playoff staple the past few years. But this year they don't, look, they don't look as good. Drew Brees doesn't look as good. Their defense looks gettable. So yeah, I I could see I could see being five and two after the next two weeks and and if they are I don't really I don't really know if you can look at the Panthers much differently because both of those games are winnable then you got the Falcons then they play at Kansas City this can be really hard uh, I don't think they'll win that game but I could see them going into that game if uh, um six and two and it being a big big time matchup so we'll see what happens. I'm not ready to say Matt Rule is this all-time great Hall of Fame coach yet, but he has started things in the way that you want to see him start, and hopefully he can keep it up. 
All right, let's take a break, and then I'll hit you up with some playoff baseball talk before we get out of here. Okay, so I wanted to get into some playoff baseball a little bit. We have the ALCS and NLCS going on right now. The ALCS had their first game last night. The Rays beat the Astros 2-1, to and the Dodgers and Braves played tonight for game one of the NLCS. The ALCS game two is today at 4 o'clock, I think. Today is Monday, by the way, October 12th. So uh, the the thing that I love about this postseason is the everyday consistency. It's kind of like with the COVID precautions. They have to, uh, each team, you know, they have to do their pre-quarantine thing where they, where they test and, and make sure nobody has COVID, bubble up, and then they just play all these games back to back to back. So the typically there would be a day off or travel day uh, after two games and all that stuff. So the the fact that they're playing all these games in one stadium, it kind of hurts the higher-seeded teams, which is, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a big reason why the Astros have been able to get all the way to the ALCS, overcoming the Twins and the A's in the first couple of rounds. They... The Astros, the, the here's the hard thing with the Astros. I, I can't stand them. I wanted them to lose, and they have shown up in these playoffs. They, they've shown time and time again that they are a really good team with a really good lineup. They don't have the starting pitching this year that they have had in years past, which has won them titles, so I don't know if they're going to beat the Rays. I think the Rays should be favored in this series, but the, the Astros have shown that that lineup is for real. Like Carlos Correa has been a stud. Uh, Jose Altuve has bounced back in the playoffs. Alex Bregman's great. Uh, Yuli Gurriel has been great. Like that, they, they have you know just really great hitters on that team. And the the cheating scandal notwithstanding, it's going to scar their resumes for the rest of their careers. And it should. I think it definitely should. You'll never know for sure how much of an effect that had on those great teams. But they, they have shown that they, their lineup is great and they're legit. They're not, they're, they were only made good by the, Stein, the, by the sign stealing, right? So um, they, they have done their best, uh, their best middle finger tour attempts. And who knows? They could beat the Rays. I, I think some people are picking them. I, you know, they're going to have to overcome some, some, inexperienced pitching, but you saw in that first game last night, I mean, they held the Rays to two runs. The Rays did, you know, did what they've been doing all year where they had great pitching and their offense did just enough. Uh, I, I, you know, I was watching it and their, their, their catcher, Zuna Nino was his name. Zunino, um, had that, uh, that RBI single. And it was almost like the whole inning was for that run. Like you could tell it, the, the the leadoff guy hit a double or got on base the with a walk the uh the next guy had like an infield uh it was basically like a bunt he hit he had an infield uh he he made contact ball went in the infield got the runner to second and then they had another uh another out that got the runner to third and then the the catcher came up and just puts the ball in shallow left or yeah, shallow left field. And 
It's a run, and that was the difference in the game. It was almost like they they just kind of cobbled together that run, and they had the home run earlier in the game by Arizuno. Or, or I'm sorry, guys, my my pronouncing with these with these uh, players is is rough. But the the overall point is the Rays look like they are doing what they do so far, and if they continue to do what they are great at doing it is probably going to result in them winning the pennant and getting to the World Series again. And I, I think it'd be a cool moment for them. The, the question that I wrote down was, who's more annoying, the Astros or Rays being in the World Series? The Rays are kind of looked at as this plucky upstart. You know, they're, they're, always, they're like the perpetual underdog. They're cheap. That Nobody really goes to their games. They tarp off seats at their stadium. The... the the team, for gosh sakes, is uh, before COVID agreed to play half their games in Montreal, half their home games in Montreal. By the way, which is that is that is drastic for a Tampa Bay market that boasts the the Bucks and the Stanley Cup winning Lightning right now. And y- you would think that they would have more involvement in that squad. The but for them to consistently year after year be good like they have been playing money ball, so to speak, and being able to put together these teams that may not make it to the postseason, but they're competitive year in and year out, uh, culminating in a team like this year's, which with a shortened season, it's kind of hard. You go into the playoffs, you don't know how good each team is. I think that's what you're seeing with the Astros, where in a 162-game season, they probably would have been like an 80-win team, 80 80, 90 win team maybe at, at the most, and they would have gotten in the postseason. Uh, the, the, they look like a really capable team, a lot more than their record would tell you of being 29 and 31, like having a losing record getting to the playoffs, but because of the expanded postseason field, it gives them that opportunity to show who they truly are. So here's my opinion. Stylistically, the Astros are funner to watch. Like, if you don't know anything about the cheating and the scandal behind the team and you're just watching baseball, you're going to want to see the Astros. They have the that, that lineup that can hit. They have some hard, you know, some young upstart pitchers coming out of their pens, throwing hard. Like, they are a fun team to watch. The Rays, they have great pitching and put together good at-bats. And they do just enough to win ball games. The Astros are the funner team to watch, but if you're rooting for the um, ethical choice, I, my 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 worst nightmare. Like uh, you know, personally, I like the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're my favorite baseball team. But even if the Dodgers say the Dodgers got beat in the last round by the Padres, and even if they weren't in it anymore, like the last thing I would want is for the Astros to get another World Series ring. And validate that they are they are the great team that they that we thought they were before the cheating allegations, because it's almost like the, the it's like they get to get away with it, right? And the it's it's extremely frustrating to think about that scenario playing out. So I I I, I hope the Rays win, to be honest. But I could see the Astros winning in in six games. So the that'll be an interesting matchup. Uh, Blake Snell pitched okay. He he got through five. 
uh, five turbulent innings. So it'll be interesting to see what Glass now and Morton do against this Astros lineup. And for the NLCS, starts tonight with the Dodgers and Braves, the two best offensive teams in baseball. And I was actually reading, it's kind of like a... It's uh, very rare that the first and second best hitting teams in the entire league play each other in the playoffs. It doesn't happen as much as you think it would. Uh, and the the so the Dodgers are the odds-on favorites right now. You, you could make a case that they should be with the 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 way that the the series have gone so far in the postseason. Dodgers swept through their first and second rounds. They swept the Padres. They, <clears throat> sorry, they swept the Padres. They swept the Brewers. They haven't lost yet. Cody Bellinger has had uh, great playoffs so far. He's hitting way better than he did in the regular season this year. He looked awful this year. So for him to kind of bounce back so far, you want to see him do it in the championship series. The The difficult thing is it's going to be, it's not a layup, right? The Braves have gotten some really interesting play out of their young pitchers so far this postseason in um they're two two young guys, Max Freed and um who is their other rookie guy? Sorry guys, I know this isn't perfect. But the the interesting part about the this series is gonna obviously be the bats and how the the Braves do against the Dodgers pitching because they have Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw they have established vets, and they also have great prospects like Tony Gonsolin, Dustin May, Bruce Gladderall, Gladderall, um, and, and and great young guys as well as great prospects. So the the Braves is kind of the same thing, except they're they're great older guys are, are Freddie Freeman, you know Ronald Acuna is amazing, so is uh, Ozzy Albies, uh, Ozuna's had a great season. Like they have such a great lineup right so it once again it's gonna this season is so hard to to really pick um ian anderson is the guy that i was looking for by the way uh the so the the way that that they that these teams match up is very similar i think and it's it's gonna be which team pitches better uh wins which is a funny, funny thing to say. It's like which team hits better wins. No, but but whichever pitchers perform uh, out of the bullpen the best, because they both kind of have some bullpen questions. Uh, Atlanta has more established roles right now, with the Dodgers having a giant question mark in in Kenley Jansen. So the interesting part will be to see how the Dodgers cobble together those late innings like are they going to put slot in Trinan as their official closer or are they going to try and keep try and keep working it out with Kenley Jansen just because it makes their setup guys 
so much easy. It, it it gives them so much more to choose from. But when you have to use one of those guys as a closer, it, it really limits their roster and their bullpen, I think. So it, it'll be interesting. I will say in the past, the past few seasons, the team with the question mark for their bullpen, it seems like is the, is the team that wins the World Series. I mean, you saw it with the Astros in 17. Um, the the Nationals last year had a lot of question marks with their bullpen, but they ended up working it out. And they their, their best relievers gave them a lot of great innings last year. So the, the Dodgers and the Braves should be a great series to go along with this really weird ALCS. So my picks are Dodgers and six, Rays and six. No, I'm going to say Rays and seven because I think the Astros have more for them. So, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast today. Uh, if you, oh, also one shout out, um, Dak Prescott, I know you don't listen to this, but dude, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers, man. Rough after the year that you've had to see you deal with that kind of an injury. So, I'm sure you're going to come back and play great and uh, get paid, dude. Um, hope you guys have a great day. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and yeah, thank you to everybody involved in this episode, which is me and everybody out there. Stay safe. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of this sports equinox, uh, all the sports at one time. And yeah, thanks for listening. Have a great day.